0: amen Uh, i want to welcome you this morning Uh, those of you that are here those of you that are joining us live stream i want you to turn in your bibles this morning to the gospel of mark and we're going to look at chapter three and we're going to begin our reading this morning in verse seven mark chapter three and we'll begin reading in verse seven this is the word of the lord Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd followed him from Galilee. And when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing toward him to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they may be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then the remainder of the verses give us the names of the apostles along with the name Judas at the end It says, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. We live in a uniquely and I think powerfully politically polarized age. I know that's not like a newsflash for all of you this morning. Uh, points and counterpoints are made. Allegations and charges arise. You can see it on Twitter. You can see it on Instagram. You can see it on Facebook. You can hear it on the news. You are inundated with information. And often that information is tending to drive divisions and wedges in the culture and country that we live in. It's not new, it may be a little more intense as the election draws near, but the struggle is not without precedent. The truth that we learn from what we observe in this way is that we live in a broken and sinful world. And the truth is, as Carmela was praying this morning, we're often worn down by that. It has a kind of a negative effect on us. It turns us into people that we don't want to be, perhaps in in given circumstances we would not normally be, but we know what it is to have such a struggle. The time of Christ was not like unlike ours. There was abuse of power, there was despair, there was oppression, there was abuse on the part of certain groups that held power. And there was also, broadly speaking, a strong desire for an honest, powerful, benevolent leader to serve and meet the needs of people. So when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to work in very powerful and miraculous, demonstrative ways, there there is a tendency for for reactions to come. And this text is going to tell us the reaction of leaders. It's going to tell us the reaction of the crowds. And it's going to tell us the reaction of disciples. Okay, so I want to just work through that, and then I want to draw just three applications from it. So from the leaders, what is the response to Jesus? I think Doug helped us a lot with understanding this from chapter 2 last week, moving into the beginning of chapter 3. These leaders are religious VIPs from headquarters, okay? They've come from Jerusalem, the capital of the perverse religious system of Judaism in that day, which had twisted the purposes of God that were given. And had turned them for personal benefit. Okay, we see that in politics all the time. You wonder how people who earn $170,000 a year can live in in mansions that are worth millions, right? And that's across the board. That's not talking about any individual. It's just this tendency on the part of the powerful to seek and get more for themselves. They've come to assess this phenom named Jesus... This text, clearly, the text that Doug did last week, verse 6, clearly highlights their strong opposition to Jesus. The end of verse 6 tells us, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, that is the, so you find the Jews and the Greeks kind of merging together in their opposition, and they began to plot how they might kill Jesus. That simply is how they might be rid of this powerful nuisance that has arisen in their world. They've had enough. They repudiate Jesus. They accuse him of being from hell, not from heaven, not the son of God, but the son of Satan. These are the kinds of accusations and derisions that they throw against him. So first you see the response from leadership of hostility. <clears throat> the irony of their response to me is fascinating. In verse 6 of chapter 3, they're reacting to the healing of the palsied man. The man with the hand that was shriveled. And they're watching to see if Jesus will do a miracle. Now just stop and think about that. Okay, they're watching to see if Jesus will do a miracle. So that they can chastise him for the religious minutia that he violated. Okay, now it's fascinating, and it gives you insight into the hard-heartedness that humans are capable of. Once they see a bona fide miracle, which should be enough to surely turn your heart, if your heart is inclined in any way towards God, once they see it, they chastise him for not following their particular regulations about how the miracle should be done. The truth is this, wouldn't you think... That the fact that a miracle has taken place would be enough to get their attention. No, the fact of the miracle is set aside. Why? Because it dealt with helping a man who was distressed. And because Jesus didn't do it in the way that they want it done, they respond to him with a deep and strong hostility. Isaiah 53.3 comes to mind, doesn't it? He was despised and rejected. Their response to Jesus is predicted in the Old Testament. It should not come as a surprise to us that that Jesus Christ himself and his followers are likely at times to face hostility from people who oppose the righteous ways of God. And I think this level of blindness here is willful and extreme. You also see in this text the crowds. Verses 7 to 8 lay an emphasis on the fact that the crowds are, they're, they're rather large. Okay, so the, the, the way that the text is set together, the word large is emphatic. It's, it's the emphasis is the incredibly huge number of people that are flocking around Christ. Now verses 8 to 10 tell us why they're coming. It says, when they heard all about what he was doing, many people came. Verse 10 says this, For he healed many. You find out that they come from a large geographic region, from the north, from the south, and from the east of Jerusalem. They're coming from every direction. Very likely that this is a mixed multitude, that there are Jews and Gentiles in in the mix of the crowd that is coming. They're coming because they heard what he was doing. Many, in this context, I believe, have come to see the spectacle that is Jesus. Jesus. Many understandably sought relief from grievance and abuse. Why? They lived in a conflicted world where abuse was the norm. So you can't fault them for coming to Christ for that reason. But if that is the only reason that someone comes to Christ, it needs to be faulted. He doesn't come simply to bring peace to your temporary, worldly setting. He aims to change your life. They find Many of them find Jesus hopeful, but not life-changing, life-altering. They want to be delivered, but they do not want to be changed. And you find later that as, the, as hostility increases, that the crowds begin to diminish. And Jesus looks at his disciples in John chapter 6, and he says, Will you leave also? Is it getting a little too warm? Will you also abandon me? They say to him, we're not going anywhere. You have the words of life. You are our hope. So we find the crowds. And you find this little vignette in verse 11 through 12. It says, whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. This is an interesting kind of interjection into the text. It's not expanded upon deeply. All that we find is that there is an attempt on the part of the demons to attract attention to Jesus and we find Jesus silencing or demonstrating his authority over them. Okay, so that's what we see. Why does he tell them to be silent? And I think the answer to that may be this. They're seeking to push Jesus into a public position to out his mission. But Jesus has come on his, as he says in the Gospel of John or numerous times, he says, I've come to do my father's will and my time has not yet come. Jesus will not be pushed into the public spotlight by impure voices. And so simply put, they, they, they make an issue of Jesus and he tells them to be quiet because he will not play into their perverse plans. The third response that we see, after seeing the response of the leader's hostility, of the crowd's curiosity, and of the the disciples' commitment. Okay, and this text seems to focus much more on the, the calling of the disciples and the purpose for which they are being called. And so this morning I want to challenge you to learn from them. The text begs the question, since there is a variety of responses to the person of Christ, how do I know if I am truly Following Jesus, how do, I, how do I know if I am rightly motivated in my following of Christ? And what I want to do this morning is work our way through the text, looking at the responses of Christ's disciples with a little bit of side observations. But I want to focus primarily on how they are responding to Christ, so that we can compare how they're responding to our response to Christ, so that we understand the validity or, or, or the uh, uh, integrity of our following after Jesus. So let's look at the disciples in particular. Verse 13, after this flurry of activity, gathering of crowds, many miracles taking place, Christ is bona fidely demonstrating the authority of the kingdom in very pronounced ways. But in verse 13, he begins to move away from the crowds. The Bible says Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. So I want you to look at this with me. The the responses of the disciples revealing three very simple principles. Number one is this. They respond to his call without conditions. Verse 13 gives us a, a very beautiful insight into the way that Jesus worked. It says, he went up onto a mountainside and he called to him those that he wanted. Okay? It doesn't say that these were the outstanding people. It doesn't say that these were the distinguished people. What the text makes definitively clear... Is that the people that make up the beginning of jesus ministry in terms of leadership are the ones that he wanted, okay and if you know the story of the disciples, that in and of itself is astonishing and remarkable and, ho- and I-, I pray that for you it is hopeful that when you when you see the, the the group that Jesus organizes, you at some level you ought to be able to say. I can see myself in that group. I can identify certain personal characteristics and certain individuals in that community. I can see myself there. And what does that mean? Here's what it means. In spite of your weaknesses and your struggles, Christ can and does desire to use you. In this context, he called them. And the text pushes a little bit further, saying that he chose them that they might be with him. Now, at one level you have to admit this. Jesus is earlier on in chapter 1 walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He sees Peter, James, and John in two different settings fixing nets, preparing the boat to go fishing. And he looks at them directly and says... I want you to follow me. Okay, now we know that they probably know something about Christ because they've been in the region of the Sea of Galilee where his ministry is taking place. But there is, the the words that come to mind for me in terms of this calling them is that there is something in the call of Christ that is bold and audacious. It's, if I said to people, come and become adherents of me. Come and do what I do come and follow me, leave your life, follow me. I would be called the leader of a cult. But there is something about the person of Christ and the works of Christ that authenticate his ministry and that make this call for the disciples not something they desire to reject, but something to which they immediately respond. Mark chapter 1 says they immediately left everything and followed Jesus. There is a level of commitment, of sacrifice, that is is observed in in, in the response of the disciples that tells me that their response is without condition. They hear the words of Christ, they discern it to be true, and they automatically respond. It's a challenge for us. How do you respond when you hear the voice of God, when you see the word of God, when you know the call of God? You know what he wants from you. Is their hesitation, right? The mark of a true disciple is that they respond without conditions. Now, this text makes an interesting side observation. He's calling them into a group that he is going to guide and direct and lead to change the world. The text says this. It says he appointed twelve, and and some texts will push a little further. Uh, Luke 6, 13, he designated them as apostles, ones that would be sent as official representatives or dignitaries of an organization, okay? So the 12 that he calls are representatives of what God is doing. Now, when you, you, you can get a lot of fascinating things out of numbers in the Bible, okay? And some people, I think, sometimes I'm like, wow, okay, you're pushing it. But when you look at the account of the calling of the 12 disciples in the context of Jerusalem, in the context of Galilee, you cannot help but see the connection in the number 12 to the 12 tribes of Israel whose representatives in that day are whom? They're the religious establishment which is rejecting Jesus. They typify a system that has drifted into corruption. They are clearly evil in their desires and intent. Jesus does a miracle, a bona fide miracle. Their response, he needs to die. Right? It, it's shocking, it's... What? Now, the reason for their hatred of Christ is because of the kinds of people that he expresses hope to. And in his godlike love for sinners... Jesus stands as a rebuke to the religious establishment, which has perverted power and used it for personal gain. Folks, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And it's true across the board politically. And it is true in the time of Christ. Now, what is going on in the calling of 12 disciples who obviously become the new representatives of the people of God... What is going on in this selection of 12 to start something new? What's going on is this. There is an inherent rebuke and rejection of the religious establishment in Jesus's day. Jerusalem and the leadership there is clearly being rejected in this move of Christ. He is establishing a new group of 12, a new people of God, through whom he will begin to work and Share salvation with the world. In the apostles, Jesus is laying the foundation of the church and forming a new people of God. Paul in Galatians 6 will call it the Israel of God. In Ephesians 2.20, he will say, you are members of God's household, God's family. And listen to this. That family is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets meaning it's anticipated in the Old Testament. And it is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. And when the new leader comes, he establishes a new group. And the foundation of that new group, the church, is the apostles. Now, as you begin to think about that, you're going to understand why the religious establishment responds with such hostility towards Christ. His works imply their rejection and demise. The calling of the 12 implies what? That God is beginning to do something new and he's using average people to do it. Ordinary people to do it in his power. It's a beautiful, beautiful account here. Their response to him, the response of the disciples in light of this large call that they can't even begin to to understand is immediate and unconditional. In spite of being self-conscious in regard to their weaknesses, which they, they, they have to be reluctant when he calls them. They must be the people that when he calls them, they look, no, he means me. I mean, look. if you look at the list and you begin to study it out through the Gospels, you will be amazed at the character of these disciples. Jesus will later say, those who do my father's will are my family, are my associates. And these disciples are clearly declaring that they are authentic Christ followers because when he calls and when he directs, they respond without condition in spite of the sacrifice that is required. Secondly, verse 14 says this. It says, "He appointed 12 that they might be with him." It's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Jesus is calling the disciples into personal relationship with him. Now see, one thing that's true about perverted religious leaders, they tend to want to stay in isolation. So the people never know their true heart. Jesus, in contrast, calls his disciples to be with him, to become followers of him, to become adherents. The word that we use in the New Testament speak is the word to become disciples. So this, this text, this call of Christ, he called them that they might be with him, is an invitation to become Disciples. It's a relationship that obviously in this text, because of the exalted nature of Christ, talks about our relating on the vertical plane, our relating to God in flesh. Discipleship is this. It is life in relationship to a leader or a mentor. One of the words that we might use to to run in contrast to or or in parallel to the idea of disciple is the word apprentice. Apprentice. Right In certain work environments, I, I know uh, some folks in our church that are involved with uh, unions, some of the trades, that typically to get to a point where you are able to function on your own, you are put in a program of apprenticeship. The purpose of that apprenticeship is so that you can learn the trade to the point that you are effective on your own and you, you kind of move forward from this beginning phase to a stronger phase of leadership, And that is exactly what Jesus is doing with the disciples in this text. He calls them to, as one of the New Testament texts says, Jesus says, come and learn of me. Come be with me and see what I am like. Here's the truth. There is no effective ministry or obedience apart from time with Jesus. So it's important that we are in quiet time with Christ on a regular basis, that we're in His Word on a regular basis, that we're commuting with Him in prayer on a regular basis, that we're studying His life and seeing what He did so that we can fulfill the command of John 20, 21. What you saw me do, do it. Okay, that's the call that Christ gives to us. He wants us to find ourselves vitally attached to Him as learners so that we can become skilled followers of Christ. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit for, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what is Jesus doing here? He's acknowledging the hostility that is present out in the world, rejecting the religious establishment. He is calling disciples into relationship with him to begin this new work called the church of Christ, through which he will bring transformation to the world. Now, the other thing that's interesting in this text, if Jesus is calling the disciples as a group to be with him on a vertical plane, and I think it's also clear to understand that there is also an important horizontal plane in relationships that is also being emphasized. He never calls one. He never, in the New Testament, sends one. He himself moves into his most difficult life circumstances in community. And what he's doing for the disciples is modeling the beauty of life together. Folks, God has called you, if you know Christ, he's called you into something new, the church. The new people of God. The outworking of what Israel was pointing to. He's called you into that, but he wants you to understand that that community is often spoken of in the New Testament as a body where there is unity, one, and there is diversity, many, who live together and minister together and serve together. If you wanted to do an interesting exercise, read through the book of Acts, and you will find that no one ministers in isolation. None. None. The advance of this purpose of God is a, is a plurality. It's a community. It's a family. The focus is never on individuals save Jesus. But even Jesus designs to walk among us. To live with them and calls them to spend time with them. To me there is something very beautiful and precious about this call. Now to put it mildly I think we would all have to say... This group of men struggles with the concept of team. Okay, you you need, you need not read very far in the Gospels till you begin to understand that Jesus Christ did not do a very good job of selecting team members. They were very prone towards independence and isolation. Here's the danger in that. If I succeed alone or experience any level of success alone, an insidious sense of pride will come and a condescending look towards others and I will begin to exalt myself above people that struggle. Which is exactly what happened to the religious establishment, isn't it? Jesus calls us into community. He wants us to succeed in his call together, not independently, not in isolation. Because he's called us to something bigger than ourselves. You see, folks, that's the danger of, of the crowds that fled to Jesus seeking relief from their temporary problems. He didn't come simply to heal people. He came to change the entire trajectory of their eternal destiny. He came to call them into a family that will never end the church of Christ, the people of God. So there's a, there's a beauty. There's a beauty to what's happening. I want to say this, and and we live in one of the strange, this is the strangest time socially that I have personally ever experienced. And for one that's awkward socially, (laughs) this is the strangest time I've ever seen. And here's what I want to say. In an era of social distancing, be careful that you do not give up the biblical mandate to live life together God has by design through the work of Christ gifted you in specific ways to have a specific intentional impact in the life of others and when I drift into isolation I deny the very purpose for which God called me so he says don't forsake, don't give up life together as the habit of some is and that's an an applied warning that there is a danger in drifting into isolation jesus called us into community and it was his brilliant ingenious design that we would serve one another and walk humble before our god in service to each other so disciples of christ respond to his call without condition they understand, because it's it's the way of Jesus, they understand the value of life together. And third, they confidently depend on God's power to fulfill his purpose. And as I said to you, the purpose of God that is, I think, clearly pointed to in this text, though it's not stated boldly yet, his clear intention and purpose is to start a, to reject the, the perverse system of Judaism and by calling 12 disciples to establish a new nation, a new people, a new family, a new community that is called the church, right? This is his aim, his purpose, his goal, his objective. So the last thing that we see is as the disciples are called, they are challenged to move Confidently dependent upon God's power to fulfill that purpose. And you're going to find in this text that there are two directives given to the disciples. It says he appointed twelve, that is the, now the, the group, okay, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Okay, so he breaks down their their new plan with two directives. One is to preach, one is to exercise authority over demons. Preaching is clearly, as you would work through the rest of Scripture, the primary duty of Christ's followers, particularly of the apostles. They are to act as heralds accurately and authoritatively proclaiming the Word of God. This idea of preach is not simply to give a speech. Okay, the idea of preaching is to give an an authoritative call. So every Sunday morning, we as pastors have been given by God the duty, Paul says in 2 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. The idea of preaching is not simply have a discussion, have a talk, come up with a couple thoughts, okay? The idea of preaching is to unpack truth with a definitive call to action. To change. To transformation. Okay? So he, 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 he gives them this primary duty to go and to preach. Now obviously they are learning from Christ the message that, that they're sharing about this new community. And ultimately the message that they're going to be given to preach is how one enters into this new community. The hope being this. That in the middle of their religiosity, In the middle of their religious observance, in the middle of their ritual, they will see their brokenness, they will see their sinfulness, and they will realize that in Jesus Christ proclaimed, there is hope. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, the preaching of the cross is to those that are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want you to think about that. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. On the cross, Christ will be mocked, derided, disregarded, and dismissed. But through the disciples, he will be proclaimed as the hope of nations. And he is is calling them. To their primary ministry, that is to proclaim and make known that forgiveness and hope for broken, religious, disappointed people is found in Christ. No matter where you're coming from, the disciples become kind of an example of that. They come from all different walks of life, all different moral statuses. And ultimately, uh, the apostle Paul will be chosen as the last apostle of whom the apostle Paul himself will say, I am the chiefest of sinners. (laughs) I am the least likely and least deserving person to be built into the foundation of what God is doing. Least likely. But how effective? Folks, all that means is that the gospel that they are preaching says that my sins can be forgiven and that they do not prevent me from usefulness in the kingdom of God. Do not believe the lie of the religious establishment. That you're too far gone. That you don't have hope. That if people knew the truth about you, they would not want to associate with you. Don't believe the lie. Believe the message that Jesus sent the apostles to preach. Matthew 28 starts to lay it out very, very clearly. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in my name and teach them what it is to follow me. And that call goes out irregardless of the nature of the audience. There is a common denominator in this group this morning. And that is that we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. The other common denominator is this, that hope for everyone in this room and listening on live stream is found in a person who is to be proclaimed as the hope of nations. And that through faith in Christ and faith in his shed blood, repentant sinners can find themselves brought into, adopted into the new family of God. Irregardless of their history, irregardless of their race, irregardless of anything, they can be called into this family. The verse then goes on to say, in verse 15, that they are to have authority over and to drive out demons. That is simply to say this. They are authorized to effectively and authoritatively confront Satan's opposition to God's purposes in people's lives. Okay? The call is to effectively confront Satan and his opposition to God's purposes in people's lives. We are to proclaim freedom in Christ. And the disciples in this context, there was obviously in, 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 in this context, there is a very heightened sense of activity that surrounds the ministry of Christ. Right? There is a lot of demonic activity. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that they have been given a calling to oppose that work of Satan, confronting it with the preaching of the gospel. Okay, now, here's the other thing that happens. If you go to Luke chapter 9, the kind of the parallel text to this text, you'll find that the disciples, the apostles, are sent out to heal the sick and to drive out demons. Okay, in Mark, the emphasis seems to be on the fact that there is this opposition driven by demonic forces that the disciples are being called to counteract. So in Mark chapter 3, there is no discussion of the healing ministry. It doesn't mean that it wasn't stated in that time. It wasn't necessarily relevant to the argument that Mark is making here. Okay, but when you broaden it out, you'll find that the, the signs of the apostles, the signs and wonders that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, or, or 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, they're a package of activities that aim at authenticating the message that is being preached. So here, here's a kind of by way of balance. The aim of miracles is not a raw display of power with temporary benefits. Okay, and often that—that that is the way that miraculous activity is sought in the ancient world and in the modern world. There is a seeking after benefits that are only temporary. The purpose of miracles was not primarily that. But it was to demonstrate God's power and to authenticate the message that the disciples in fact are preaching. So they're proclaiming a message that the kingdom of God is coming and that the power of Christ is authoritative and overwhelming. And you ought to respond to them like we did, okay? Their their ministry also confronts the brokenness of the world in terms of demonic activity and in terms of sickness and illness and brokenness. All those things are being addressed in the ministry of the apostles, not to display raw power, but to authenticate the message that they have been called to preach. So follow the flow. They're called to preach and to cast out. Okay, so one is a proclaiming ministry, one is an authenticating ministry. Okay, one validates the message that is being proclaimed and allows people to see the reality and truthfulness of it. The Bible says in Luke 9, 6, it says they went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing the sick, proclaiming and authenticating that God's saving purpose in the work of his son is advancing despite the profound opposition that is present. You can go back through the the gospel of Mark, just the first three chapters, and you'll find that this opposition is intensifying. You read the story of John being cast into prison, right? A follower of Christ. You read the story of Christ coming on the scene and the opposition that is coming against him that finally builds to the point where they are plotting his death. There's a lot of opposition. But the work of God is advancing in the work of his son despite the opposition. So the way to look at the text in a big way is this. There's a lot of brokenness in Jerusalem. And what is what is signified or typified in the 12 tribes is found in the broken religious system of Judaism. Jesus Christ is turning his back on that and doing what God called him to do, and that is to establish the church of God. Okay, when Jesus confronts the religious establishment, calls it what it is, and turns his back, it is at that point that the religious establishment says, enough. And verse six of Mark three, they began to plot with the political leaders how they might do away with Christ. Now that is at one level to me profoundly sad. Because in the inbreaking of Christ's ministry and the outbreaking of the kingdom of God, there is a beauty there is a hope that is expressed, and for, for, for deeply sinful reasons, deeply selfish reasons, the political establishment says, no, no. And they categorically reject Christ and all who follow him. So you find the, in, the, the beginnings of that in, in the rejection of John the Baptist and his death. And you will find it throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark where they are plotting to terminate the life of Jesus because they don't like the message of the Gospel. To me that is so sad. That the religious establishment who should know the person of Christ has turned their back on him and is without hope. But for those that Hear Christ, follow without condition, value vital relationships, and confidently depend on God's power to fulfill those purposes, glorious and amazing things begin to happen. Jesus, to establish the church, chooses simple, average, unimpressive people, and he fills them by the Spirit. Acts 1.8 says they will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon them and they will be witnesses. That goes back. The primary ministry of Christ's followers is to make much of the family that God is building and to call sinners into that family through the shed blood of Christ. He fills them by His Spirit. To do this important work, He redundantly gives them His presence. He's with them, He leaves them, He sends Himself to them in the person of the Spirit so that they continue the work that He has called them to do in building the church. That's the purpose of God, folks. There's a verse in the book of Job that says this. And it's as Job kind of comes to the end of his, his flustered nature, his personal struggle. He's not angry at God. He's not rejecting God. He's crying out. And at the end of this, this powerful session with God, Job makes a statement that I think is very powerful in understanding this text. Job says, God, I know that you can do all things. And that No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Folks, I want to tell you something. In the life of Christ, the gates of hell are unleashed against the church in its incubation stage. Unleashed. Jesus knows that, he anticipates it for the disciples, and he makes a promise. Matthew 16:18: "I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her." And folks, we, by the grace and power of God, have been empowered by the Spirit to go out and make a difference in our world. Look, does America matter? Yes. I love the country I live in. There's many things happening in the country I live in that I deeply regret. But my hope is not in the future of America. My hope is found in the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church. And every confessing, repentant sinner that comes to Christ in need is drawn into something, drawn into something against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And there's also a promise of this. It is a promise that the gates of hell will rage against what God is doing. It's implied in the statement. He wants the disciples to know that while he is building his church, what he experienced from the religious establishment against him, seeking to kill him, It's the same thing that they are likely to experience. That's kind of terrifying, right? I mean, I can read through the the list of the disciples' names, and guess what I find at the end? I find an ominous note. And Judas, who opposed the work of God in betraying the Son of God, but the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Folks, It's a text that's ominous. And it's a text that's hopeful. He chose 12. And their resume is not impressive. Somebody wrote this, and I'll just read this to you to close. Somebody wrote this. It's a fake response to Jesus' request to have the disciples analyzed in regards to their efforts and work. It says, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men that you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken a series of tests. And we have not only run the results through our computer, but we have also conducted an in-depth interview with each of them by our staff psychologists and vocational aptitude consultants. The profiles of the test are included, and you will want to study each of them very carefully. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you desire to undertake. They do not have the team concept, and we would highly recommend that you continue your search for persons with more experience, higher qualifications, and greater managerial abilities. (laughs) Simon Peter is emotionally unstable (laughs) and given to fits of temper. Andrew simply has no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty and are quite boisterous. They were called the sons of thunder. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale amongst the group. It is our duty to inform you that the Better Business Bureau of Greater Jerusalem has received reports on Matthew regarding questionable business practices. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and both demonstrate attitude problems which would present difficulty in their dealing with the public. And then the last, obviously, Judas they give a high recommendation for. It, it's humorous because it's true. It's true. You know, no, no, like no sarcasm lives without truth. There's always a... And for the religious establishment, that's what they thought of who Jesus chose. But when you get into the book of Acts and start to look at the committed, relational, confidently dependent upon God's power work of these men, here's the summary statement they walk in and the observers say these are the men that turn the world upside down zachariah said not by might not by power but by my spirit says the lord folks why are we so reluctant in light of such great promises May God help us to accept the fact that we're ordinary, most of us, because the Bible says God has not chosen many mighty and many powerful. You know why? He doesn't need them. He doesn't need them. He will occasionally use them, but he is not in need of them. And I hope that as you go, you will go with a sense of hope That your unimpressive resume does not push you into the margins of what God is doing. It makes you part of the main story. Because when God uses you, it will get the attention of those around you. And they will want to know what happened. What changed you? What do you believe? What are you trusting? Who are you trusting? May God help us at that time to fulfill our main objective while addressing other needs. May we fulfill our main objective to tell them the truth of the good news that is found in the person of Christ for their saving and for his glory through the church forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, forgive us. For weak apprehensions of what Christ began in his work. Forgive us for not realizing that all that was promised to the disciples, early apostles, the foundation of the church, is promised in and to the structure as a whole. So God, may we today confess our reluctance to follow May we get over the fact that we are not fully adequate in and of ourselves. And may we fully surrender to the call that you have placed on our lives. Because God, one thing is for sure, we live, all of us know this, we live in a world of such great need and hopelessness. And as the family of God, as the community of believers, God, may we invade our world. Not with the desire and passion for political change, but for change that will come one person at a time. As your spirit moves, works, delivers, convicts, saves. God help us to join in that ministry and that work as you have called us and sent us to do. Help us, God, today to go in great faith that is bolstered by the presence of your Spirit to make us able, more than able, to do the work that you have called us to do. God, if someone's here this morning that has never trusted Christ, oh, Lord, I pray that they would know that there is a message that is preached for them, and it is Christ and him crucified. Christ, who on Calvary's cross, bore their sin, all of its consequence, and offers them forgiveness and the gift of righteousness. God, to the, to the person here this morning who is burdened by their brokenness, I pray that your Spirit would move mightily and powerfully in them this morning to draw them to the hope that they're hearing that is found in Jesus. Move them out of their place of brokenness by your grace into your family by the work of Christ. Oh God, do that. No one's here this morning by mistake, Lord. I pray, God, if someone here today is hearing your voice that today they would not harden their heart but instead they would come to the altar and trust in the saving work of Christ. And to pray that that miracle, that blessing will come for the glory of Jesus in whose name we confidently pray and we confidently surrender to the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I want to encourage you this morning, if you have a need that you would like to be prayed for, I just want to encourage you, come up to the front. Uh, The elders will be up here and we would love in the midst of this stressful time. And I'm going to tell you, even in my preparation for this sermon, uh, that sense of being overwhelmed was prevalent. But I trust that God's word will work and do what he aims to do. So if you need prayer this morning, I would just encourage you, just come on up. Uh, You can pray alone at the altar. If you want someone to pray with you, a couple of us would be standing up here. Just come, and uh, we'd be more than happy to answer any questions you have or help in any way that we can. All right, may God bless you, and uh, go in peace.